Welcome back. This is episode 23 of Hubtological Highlights. And this fortnight, we're going to be digging into the lives and diets of native snakes. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. So, native snakes? Yeah, so we've got three native species of snake in England. Well, the British Isles. Um, which isn't very many. It's actually, you know... We're not famous for our snake diversity. But wait, don't we have more types of... Oh, they're not native, are they? No, we've just... We've got... I mean, we've got three native yeah, I mean, snakes. Yeah, then that's what you said, wasn't then it? Then there's the non-native... You didn't just say snakes. You said native snakes. Yeah. And then we've got the Escalapian snake, which is non-native, which is, of course, the focus of my PhD. Some would say the coolest snake in the UK. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then we've also got three lizards and a bunch of non-native lizards. And then we've got, you know, the odd sort of terrapin. Um, Isn't there that the tiny ca- population of corn snakes somewhere north of London? Oh, I don't know about that. Isn't there? there? I, I'm sure there's a... I vaguely remember there being another introduced population of something like some sort of generic colubrid uh i think you might be talking about escalapian snakes there's a population in the regent's canal in london oh maybe that's what i'm getting mixed up with then and uh the fact that you've referred to them as generic colubrid snakes is going to be a source of contention for the rest of our lives <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry yeah it's fine mate you're just studying generic giant ophiophagus elapids it's fine yeah I suppose they're so, they're so generic that no one's even worked out how many species there are. <laughs> um, Can't tell them apart. I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, before we get too bogged down in native snakes and who studies what, I think we should just quickly mention we've just recently set up a Patreon account. Um, so if you're listening to the podcast and you like the podcast, uh, we have to spend money on various things and we spend time trying to get it going. Uh, well, basically, this is just a, a brief beg for cash. So if you feel like you want to donate as little as $1 a month to keep the podcast going, help us pay our uh, hosting fees, etc., etc., and maybe get the podcast to more people, then we'd greatly appreciate your support at, uh, what is it, patreon.com slash herp highlights? I think so, yeah. Yeah. but uh, Everything slash herp highlights. Yeah. I mean, we say herp highlights a lot at the end of the episode, so we'll throw this one in at the beginning, so then <laughs> we need to say it three times at the end. But yeah, that'd be great. Any Any donation big or small would be extremely gratefully received and it would help us because um yeah like you know we're happy to do it but um at the minute it's costing us money exactly it's hosting hosting costs are the main thing we want to get knocked on the head otherwise it's grand yeah um but if not if you don't want to donate you know whatever just listen for free scumbag Well, the other thing is we wanted to avoid putting adverts in it. Yes. That was the other trick, because that would be the other way to go with sponsorship. And yeah. neither of us are particularly comfortable doing that no, or no. wanting that. Well, and we're certainly not charging for access. All I want so people to hear is... This was a nice solution to not... <laughs> yeah, yeah. All I want people to hear is... The, the, the episodes. Yeah. You just want our sweet syrupy voices and... The odd bit of music. You don't want any adverts. I always feel like I'm so wily when I fast forward the adverts at the beginning of a podcast anyway. <laughs> yeah, but that's effort. And if you're driving, you can't do that. Should we move back on to native snakes? Yes, let's dive straight in 
to well, the first paper, yeah, right? Let's just quickly outline the three native species that we do have, so people know what we're talking about. We've got the adder, Viperoberus, uh, we've got the smooth snake, Coronera austriaca, and we've got the grass snake, Natrix, 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 not Natrix, 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 um, or is it? Just Natrix, Natrix. Yeah, or Natrix, Natrix, Natrix. There is a subs- Or Natrix, Natrix, Helvetica. Yeah, or to be continued. We'll pick up that line later. <gasps> yeah. So, um, yeah, let's do it. First paper. Which one's our first paper again? Uh, oh, yeah, you tried to muddle the order and confuse everybody, didn't you? So, mm, the first one... No, <laughs> no, definitely didn't. <laughs> okay, so, Redding and Joffrey, 2013. Diet composition changes correlated with body size in the smooth snake Coronella austriaca, inhabiting lowland heath in southern England, published in Amphibia Reptilia. Um, yeah, so onto genetic dietary change. Well, onto mm. genetic change, often abbreviated to ontogenic change, because it's easier to say, is just anything. We've talked about it in the podcast before, I think, with monosolizards, haven't we? It's monosolizards, and it's come up again in something else where we referred back to the monotolizard episode. Yeah. Yeah. Although I forget what the second thing was. I can't remember at all. But, um,. Yeah, ontogenic change is just any change. Oh, yeah, because we were confusing it with allopatry, weren't we? Um, but yeah, ontogenic change is any change that an animal goes through throughout its sort of life history. So if it eats one thing when it's a baby and eats another thing when it's an adult, that's an ontogenetic dietary change. Mm. It's common in many animals, you know, even humans. So when I was a baby... Yeah. It was most babies don't like olives. No, they hate olives. They hate olives. Yeah, and um, they only eat falafel and carrots. That's all they eat. And in when they're... it's all they're, it's all they're capable of yeah. eating, really. Yeah. Well, they start off with just milk. They're just milk specialists, and then <laughs> eventually, obviously, lactophagists. Lactophagists. Yeah, they're teetologists, and then getting bigger. Obviously, you move on to hummus, carrots, and um, blended up sugary stuff that looks like sick and then <laughs> eventually sort of age 12 or 13 olives and and fizzy drinks and fizzy, fizzy drinks olives <laughs> chocolate bars um, it's a strange life yeah it's a strange strange life and now as well there's um something else that kids love which is ice cream sandwiches you seen that ice cream sandwiches yeah that's evolution that's pinnacle of evolution right there <laughs> um but yeah, much like humans, snakes don't just eat the same thing from when they're babies to when they're adults because it wouldn't make any sense. Think about it. It's obvious. Like, you know, if you had a Burmese python that was when it was born, it's like, I don't know, 12 inches long, maybe at a push. It's not going to eat a deer. That's lunacy. Why would you say that? What about a mouse deer? They're pretty small. Well, even a mouse deer. thing is about mouse deer, they're small, but they've got the cantankerousness of a normal sized deer. Condensed, they're like Shetland ponies. <laughs> yeah, Shetland ponies are evil. Actually, it's a very good analogy. Yeah. If you but see the, a... the point, the point is getting away from Shetland ponies. <laughs> is that if you've got an ontogenetic change, that might imply you need to take different or a diverse set of conservation actions to fully protect a species. Because if you're protecting the prey of your adults but failing to protect the prey for your juvenile snakes, that's going to undermine the population and you're not going to really have many snakes left after a few years, right? Yeah, or conversely, if you want to wipe out a snake, find out what the babies eat and kill all of those. 
it's a joke, Ben. It's a joke. Uh, um, it's too real. Sorry. So, uh, yeah. Do you know what ontogeny means? What, you mean like the root of it? Yeah, the root of it. I don't know. It means being developed in ancient Greek. There you go. Being developed. Diets that are being developed. Yeah. And uh, the whole point of this paper was that they wanted to find out how the diet of smooth snakes changed over the course of the smooth snake's life. Mm. And to do this, they actually came down to your neck of the woods, didn't they? Yeah, wasn't it Wareham Forest? Yeah, have you been there? To Wareham Forest? Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I have. I definitely have. I used to go to Dorset on holiday. Um, yeah, Dorset's in southern England. It's really nice. Um, it's a holiday I didn't honestly know that Wareham Forest had a decent smooth snake population. Like, if I was going looking for smooth snakes, I'd be heading to Arn and places like that. Yeah, I'd go to but, sort of um, the New Forest. Oh, that's a bit further. Yeah. Mm. But, um, yeah, a really nice place. Um, if you want to go on a nice holiday in southern England, there's lovely coves, um, interesting rock formations. There's nice fossil beaches. <laughs> and there's Corfe Castle, which is great. Really great. Corfe Castle's good. If you're into castles, it's one of the best I've seen. <laughs> Moving on. Wareham Forest. Good old Jurassic Coast. Yeah, the Jurassic Coast, you know, trilobites for days. So... Ichthyosaurs, you know. Yes. Oh, that'd be cool to find an ichthyosaur, wouldn't it? Um, but yeah, so the study site is in Wareham Forest. Uh, contrary to what you might think, lots of things in England are named forest, where in actual fact there is no forest. It's just this thing that, in, you know, we like to do to try and confuse the tourists. So... Well, isn't it that forest comes from a word that meant area of hunting ground? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So the new forest was like some ancient king's hunting area. It was all... It was the first thing... First kind of... Not nature reserve, but area sort of uh, <laughs> set aside solely for the killing of mammals. Mm. Which, yeah, I mean, now it's uh, full of mammals as well. Lots of horses and cows and stuff. But this area in Wareham Forest is sort of a dry lowland heath. So you've got heather and gorse. Gorse is like a... Getting to the tops about two metres tall, prickly yellow flowers, and Heather's just this like low lying, nice purple stuff that smells nice. <laughs> nice purple stuff that smells nice. It does, doesn't it? I love the detail we put into uh, descriptions <laughs> of her pet fauna, and I reply, and it's like, yeah, it's purple and smells nice. <laughs> it does, it smells really good. <laughs> With the word stuff in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the point is, this Wareham Forest sort of lowland heath is quite low vegetation but it's structurally complex so you've got basking spots and cover which is perfect habitat for snakes especially smooth snakes you know like little sandy patches they can bask in and the authors did eight years worth of surveying nine years Mm. nine years um yeah they did visual searches from 2004 to 2012 looking under refugia and monitoring the snake populations and whenever they caught a snake they'd collect the data on the diet by kind of squeezing the poo out like a froob a froob or if you're in america a gogurt is that what they're called i think so <laughs> another world over there <laughs> it's crazy yeah yogurt in a tube gogurt i think so what i might, I might be completely completely wrong with that but <laughs> pretty sure why is why is the froob called a froob what is that an amalgamation of 
fruit and tube. Oh, that's very clever. Wow. <laughs> All these years. <laughs> Literally. Been right in front of me. <laughs> Never given a minute's thought. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, what they found. Should we get into what they found? That's pretty much their methods, isn't it? Just squeezing yeah. the poo out of snakes. Yeah, well, I think it's nice to... to they had a little justification why they didn't uh, elicit regurgitation of prey. And it's basically because you, you're robbing the snake of nutrients if you're doing that. Yeah. It is. It has been done in other studies, but I did like their sort of, hey, we're not going to hear the mess up these snakes' lives. And smooth snakes are already pretty rare. They're very protected. So it was just a nice way of keeping the impact of the study on these species a little bit lower than it could have been. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good thing that they didn't do that um, because they aren't, you know, their, their habitat is very... I say their habitat. Their range is very small in the UK. They're, yeah. They're, you know, there's there's a lot of them in Europe. And their their range is actually massive. Um, but yeah, here they're they're quite heavily protected. So we should actually talk about what they look like, really, shouldn't we? Yeah. They're kind of grey, aren't they? Grey brown, with um, they've got big scales on their heads, and they've got sort of um a black bar from the nostril all the way through the eye to the side of the head bit of black on top of the head and then they've got kind of i don't know how you describe that um they kind of look a bit like garter snakes to me with like flecks of gray and black down the back hmm. medium-sized snake you know like three feet yeah quite i mean i, I was making fun of generic colubrids but it's quite a st- standard colubrid shape and size and look right yeah definitely i don't think that's being unfair no i think that's very just that yeah not like an escalapian snake which are stunning yeah absolutely stunning magnificent very distinct yes extremely distinct (laughs) unmistakable i would say yeah yeah uh yeah so that's the smooth snake and what they found through the course of their studies were that well yeah they got the poo out and then they looked in the, the poo for scales and teeth that would help them kind of they were doing kind of a crime scene investigation on snake poo and they got 246 yeah. fecal samples from 62 different snakes and they looked in them for teeth of mammals and scales of lizards and what they found is that they mainly ate lizards and mammals <laughs> yeah mostly lizards and mammals they had one instance of a bit of toad and one instance of something else weird. Was it a snake? Was it a grass snake? I think it was. A, yes, it was. It was a grass snake. That was the other weird one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Which is kind of, you know, some snake on snake action going on there. Hmm. Uh, it must have been quite a little one, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine it being quite hard to catch a grass snake. But I suppose it's quite hard to catch a little, these little lizards. They're not slow. Sand lizards, they're pretty rapid when they want to be. Mm, yeah. Yeah, they are. And what they found was that younger snakes were eating more lizards. So, you know, sand lizards... Uh, actually, no, sorry, excuse me. They were eating mostly common lizards, which are our smaller type of lizard. The medium snakes were also eating lizards, but they were eating the bigger lizards, which were the sand lizards. Mm. And then the adult snakes had a higher percentage of mammals in the diet. So it all kind of pointed towards an ontogenetic dietary shift from... One lizard to another lizard to mammals. Yes, that's what was quite nice. It was this 
their diagrams are quite simple they're just sort of bar charts but you see this nice flow from one species to another species and then on to mammals but with those original lizards not actually disappearing from the diet at any point because of course they're getting bigger as they go as well so they're still providing some a source of prey throughout their lives which I don't know it, it's really tidy <laughs> that finding yeah yeah and they also saw that females the diet was changing seasonally so mm. in the sort of early summer well late spring to early summer may and june they were eating mostly small mammals which coincides with small mammals having families living birth and raising their young and then august and september when the lizards were well when the baby lizards were hatching out or giving being birthed uh which is it well for one it's eggs and for the other it's uh live born yeah the Common lizards Commons give, birth. give Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Hence there's scientific names, Zootoka vivipara. It's kind of a dead giveaway, isn't it? Yes. Um, yeah, and so basically the females were just eating whatever was being born at, at that time, which is, you know, pretty smart. Yeah, and there's a suggestion that while they're gravid during parts of the year, they'll deliberately take smaller prey, so it's exerting less of a pressure on their bodies, right? That's clever, isn't it? Yeah. They know. They know what they're doing. So, uh, yeah, I have to say, though, the method that they used in this analysis is not without a flaw. Because um, analysing gut contents, especially from material which is faecal, so it's gone all the way through, Mm. uh, has actually been shown to not reflect real diets. Well, not quite. Basically, this paper... There's always going to be a skew. Yeah, well, there's a paper by Glaudas et al. in 2017... And what they showed, they were filming puff adders and also they got a load of dietary information from museum puff adders. And there was an incongruence between what the puff adders they were filming were actually attacking, killing and eating and what they were finding in the stomachs of preserved specimens. Yes. And what they concluded was that what was happening is that material from things like frogs and toads, which as it turns out, make up a lot of a puff adders diet, were being digested very, very quickly um, because amphibians yeah. don't have much keratin compared to mammals and birds and reptiles, they're really efficiently digested. So what you get is fecal matter, which shows very little evidence of a frog or a toad being there, unless you, of course you could use, you know, you could look at the DNA that's in there. But um, if you're literally just physically examining it and looking for signs of life, you're not going to see the remains of amphibians, or at least you're much less likely to in preserved museum specimens and in fecal matter that's actually being expelled from the snake. I think he said, anecdotally, the author said there was a puff out of the x-rayed one day after eating a large toad, and Mm. it was pretty much already unrecognisable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is always going to be a problem with with anything that you have imperfect detectability for. You don't know the true rate, so it's hard to estimate how much is getting through without doing a sort of controlled experiment, testing how fast... Um, digestive tracts in each species works on different things. That's really quite complicated, especially with you dealing with snakes. That that rate is going to change dependent on the climate, time of year, how much they're basking, yeah, activity stuff like that. Mm. So, yeah, that is a tricky one. Yeah. So although they're, you know, they're still, it's still their their findings still 
undeniably show that there's a change from lizards to mammals. Yes. It could be that there's other things in there which are not being recognised. Yeah, it could be a lot of common frogs. They're, they're delicious. Bunch of newts. Although I don't know how... I feel like smooth snakes are not as closely associated to water bodies and things like grass snakes and stuff like that. So I would imagine there's some sort of niche separation between them and grass snakes Yeah. in terms of amphibian prey. Yeah, they're definitely not sort of... Um... I did find the bufo, eating the bufo very interesting because not all snakes can do that. No, but I wonder, because was that... Yeah... Well, yeah, because that was from a, that was that was from gut analysis, wasn't it? So they've actually squeezed the poo out, so it didn't die, presumably. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's got enough bufo in it to be recognised as bufo. This is common toad, sorry, and it's yeah, it's survived. It's gone all the way through the dietary tract, and it's come out the other end, and the snake is okay. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, I mean, yeah, who knows? Maybe they are immune to the toxins of common toads, or maybe it was just a one-off, it ate it, and it was okay. Yeah, it got lucky. Mm. I don't know. Bit... They, they caught it. It was a small one. Ugh, I don't know. Maybe it just felt a bit poorly. Well, probably did to some extent. But... The thing is, though, <laughs> with that, with just one observation, the possibilities are endless as well, because it could be that it found the toad as carrion and it, the, the toxins had deteriorated and weren't... Mm, toxins don't tend to deteriorate very quickly for bufonids. That was the problem with the uh, the death ants uh, in Australia, yeah, yeah. is that they leave the toads, or can sometimes leave the toads like they do for some other toxic frogs there, but the toxins don't deteriorate enough for them to be rendered. Yeah. You know. I mean, they were waiting how long? How long were they, like an hour or, or 10 minutes? Or Well, some of them were like mere minutes, and then others were... Was it 40 minutes upward, upwards? Fair. I feel like it was quite a long time for some of them. Yeah. Especially in a warmer climate. Yeah. I, I, I do take your point. I think, though, that if the, you know, what if the toad was out in the sun? I mean, anyway, it's just conjecture stupidity. But yeah. No. Yeah, that's a fair point. Maybe they are immune. No one's ever yeah. tested it. I mean, the, I come back to some of the instances of human poisoning from toads where people have cooked stuff improperly and they've still been poisoned by them. Oh, really? Okay. So... Uh, you can, I wouldn't underestimate the toughness of some of these toxins. Hmm. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, so what they they kind of conclude, yeah, like we said, there is an ontogenetic dietary change. Lizards to mammals in our humble smooth snakes. To my shame, I've never actually seen a smooth snake. Same here. Yeah, I've seen the I've others. Gone looking for them. I've not. I've not. Not seen them. Yeah, I've tried not many times. Uh, to be honest, adders are so cool. I'm usually happy to go and look for adders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the other times that I've gone to places where I've seen, you know, gone to find a smooth snake or something, I've ended up seeing a sand lizard or something. And that's, that's day made. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I want to go. You, know, you get out of the car and there's a toad wandering around and you just. I'm happy. Yeah. I'm good. Look at go. Yeah, I'm hoping to see some sand lizards this year. Yeah, man, they're wicked. Um, cool. So one thing they did mention that uh, cattle grazing may be bad for these snakes because... Shock horror. Yeah, I know. I was <laughs> the most obvious thing ever. But uh, yeah, the rough grassland that cows love to eat is also the best lizard habitat. Mm. 
Well, and the other problem when you're dealing with certainly sand lizards, sand lizards and stuff is they do make burrows on quite loose ground, hence the name sand lizard. So I would imagine that large bovines wandering around would disturb all sorts of nesting behaviour as well. Yeah. It it's, doesn't strike me as a particularly good recipe no. for lizard populations. But No, no. Still, people love beef. <laughs> yeah, they do. And, <laughs> and milk and stuff. Milk. So Especially, but yeah. Yeah. No, it's a tough it's a tough one to solve really the uh, grazing cattle stuff because some of the heathlands needs you know isn't strictly natural either. They are very human created landscapes some of the heathlands. Yeah, you're kind of maintaining So there is a level of management that is needed for them. So it's unfair to be so harsh on the cattle grazing stuff because some of the places do need that to continue being heath. But yeah. it's getting that balance right, which is really difficult, and I certainly don't envy land managers. Yeah, the thing with Heathland, to get it right in some of these places. Yeah, you're kind of pausing it at a mid-level succession, aren't you? So you've got a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So there are you do. Yeah, you know, cows. Sorry, cows. Maybe I was unfair to cows. There's a. I think I think there's also you know, cows might have a bigger detrimental impact on some of the grazing stuff than deer perhaps maybe the grazing methods and what they eat are different certainly i know different breeds of sheep can be used in different areas to different advantages and disadvantages same because they'll eat slightly different things same goes for cows yeah highland cows will eat more roughage they'll eat much yeah. more varied stuff whereas you know your, your your common garden domesticated cow just wants to create a monoculture lawn and they won't eat anything else. They're just obsessed with mowing the lawn. Just there. <laughs> well, and it's an intensity thing as well. If it's too intense, then everything's going to have a hard time. Yeah. But. So should we? That's a whole other issue. That is. Should we move on to the second paper? Yes. Let's do that. So paper number two is Sewell, Baker and Griffiths Population Dynamics of Grass Snakes, Natrix Natrix at a site restored for amphibian reintroduction published in Herpetological Journal in 2015 Yeah, so um, a couple of academics from Kent and then, yeah, John Baker we know John Baker Yeah uh, from Suffolk Amphibian Reptile Group um, Yeah, so they were kind of working on this area, which was set aside for pool frog reintroduction. Yeah, so this was something that I was completely ignorant of. The whole, the whole pool frog thing. Pool frog. Yeah. Long-ranging, multi-century debate surrounding pool frog native status or not. Yeah, wasn't there a, a population that was exterminated and then they found out they were native afterwards? Oh, I didn't read about that, but it seems to have been going on for, yeah, like a couple of hundred years is sort of knowing whether pool frogs are native or not and getting them mixed up with other frogs. And it's, I, I suppose it's all part of the natural process of working out uh, which species is which because they kind of look sort of similar, some of these frogs, not being unfair to them, I don't think. Pool frogs are a little bit more jazzy. I've seen them in uh, Holland. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, they're broadly similar to the common frog. I think 
I don't know. I was reading a, a Natural England report on the uh, the decision to um, reintroduce them that had a rel- well, a very good summary of what it was going out. And I think the sort of book was closed on them being native when they discovered that the the pool frogs in the UK are more closely related to frogs from Scandinavia and places, as opposed to mainland, sorry, it's still mainland Europe, but like France and Italy and places that traditionally had been thought to have been the source population for pool frogs in the UK brought over by the Romans or French monks, apparently. So that sort of closed the book because there's no way the frogs would have got from Scandinavia to the UK without going via other places in Europe, I think. So, native, because they've been there for a while and not introduced anthropogenically. Right. Um, Yeah, so they're kind of... uh, They look like a common frog. Maybe people don't know what a common frog looked like. They just look... They've got big eyes, a pointed head, and then they've got green on the back and sides, haven't they? Um... Pelophylax lesson Yeah. Yeah, so the idea was essentially there's this area in Norfolk, which is in eastern England, where there was a plan to translocate a load of pool frogs from Sweden and put these frogs manage the area so they kind of uh, cut down some trees, made it a little bit more sort of open, less closed canopy. There's a load of ponds. Then they were going to make it pool frog heaven. Yeah, essentially just a load of like really nice sunny pools. And then uh, yeah, they were kind of monitoring it after they released all these frogs. But they were also monitoring to see if the numbers of grass snakes increased because grass snakes have a kind of broadly similar habitat preference to pool frogs, and they're also predators of frogs. So it kind of stands to reason that if you conserve a load of frogs frog predators are also going to benefit and uh what's quite cool is that this was apparently the first study to ever examine how amphibian conservation efforts have an impact on their predators see this is i i really that sentence right there is the coolest bit of this paper isn't it yeah because there are quite a lot of examples of reintroductions in places that look very carefully on how that population's doing i don't know how many do it in conjunction with keeping a tab on how everything else in the ecosystem is doing. Yeah. That's really difficult. And it's really nice to see a paper that you have these two nice population trends all done over the same time in the same location and to see how they're interacting right there and then in this this location. That was really cool. Yeah, it was. So they um they looked at this population of grass snakes from 2004 till 2012 so same period as the last one really long study period Mm. um yeah and they were just kind of going around doing surveys looking under refugia um and just catching the snakes and then they weren't marking them they were iding them by looking at their markings so these grass snakes have got really like you know they've got a series of dots and things on their ventrals side which is unique to that animal um for anyone who doesn't know what a grass snake looks like, they're kind of, again, they're about sort of three feet long, aren't they? That'd be a big female, maybe four feet long. Yeah. Um, they're kind of greeny greyish with like black bars down the sides. At least our grass snakes are. And a yellow collar followed by a black collar. 
So a bit of yellow mm. behind the head and then a bit of black immediately behind that. Yeah, and actually sort of, depending on where you are, ranging from that sort of greeniness to a more greyness, aren't they? They, they can be different levels of green to brown. Yeah. But still with that sort of grassy hue. Yeah, yeah. But they're really cool snakes. Um, yeah, and so f- throughout these nine years, they managed to capture 473... Well, they captured 396 snakes 473 times. So there was 396 individuals, 473 captures. So they got a fair few recaptures in there. And using that information... Wait, how many individuals? 396. 396? Yeah. It's a bit ambiguous. Seems very high. Over the course of eight years, though, that includes juveniles and hatchlings. Oh, that's including juveniles and hatchlings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's worth mentioning because obviously there's a lot more hatchlings than there are adults. Yeah, that's why I was... It's because the... The, only the adults were used in the subsequent analysis. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I've got the lower numbers written in my notes. <laughs> yeah. So they did exclude juveniles, like you said, and they used their mark recapture data to estimate the survival and, well, they did some stuff to work out detection rate and then they built some population estimates. Yeah. Which seem to have been a bit shaky in places, right? Yeah, they took. It's been quite difficult because when you're dealing with a mark and recapture study and modelling a population size off that, you have to try and account for detectability. Yeah. And as we all know, snakes are quite hard to find. And finding the indiv- an individual in subsequent years is even harder to do. <laughs> so, because there was quite a low level of detection, that's meant that there's been quite a wide wide range of potential populations because you don't quite know how many you've actually captured yeah because you might have missed so many yeah detectability is really hard to measure because how do you measure really how many hard. things you're not finding well you have to go to a place and release 20 snakes and then see how many you find <laughs> i guarantee it but that's not really viable <laughs> it'd be none and it would probably be none <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's very tough. No. Very tough. So, yeah, they did manage to estimate, didn't they, that they had an individual detection rate of about 0.17. So, yeah. For every, well, for every 10 snakes that were there, they would find two, just under two. <laughs> yeah. Which each year. Each year. And then you've got to work in with individuals as well. That's, yeah, yeah. it's tough. Uh, I was quite interested in their inter-year survival. That excludes juveniles, by the way. Um, yeah, so the inter-year survival. So the chance of a snake surviving from one year to the next, if it was an adult, was 66%. Mm. Which, you know, if you were in a human told you had a 66% chance of reaching the next summer, you'd be pretty gutted, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but then we have a totally different lifespan and setup, don't we? That's that's why these snakes well, get away with it. Yeah, they don't probably have the comprehension of their own mortality to wrestle with either. I hope not. <laughs> Imagine if they do. What fresh hell is that? Oh, it wouldn't be. How could you concentrate on hunting a frog if you were thinking about that? Yeah. But yeah, inter- <laughs> actually worth mentioning. I've. I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a really cool video of a grass snake hunting a frog. Um, 
it's really intense. Uh, I won't give the end away, but uh, it's pretty awesome. That gives you an is idea. It another, is it is another in the series of uh, Mr. Frog's Day Out? Uh, yeah, well, I don't want to say too much, but... Um, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of Mr. Frog's Day Out. Who knows what happens to Mr. Frog? <laughs> well, yeah, if you had, like, a non... Yeah, anyway, Mr. Frog has a day out. Miss Grass Snake also has a day out. Their days out overlap, and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and things happen. <laughs> yeah, this pond's only big enough for the one of us. <laughs> oh no! But uh, yeah, it's a cool video. It's worth watching. And uh, yeah, well, like you said earlier, it, it did appear, didn't it, from this, um, from all their calculations, that the population had grown dramatically from two thousand and four to two thousand eight, two thousand and twelve. Sorry. Yeah, that was what was neat. Is is you've supplemented, uh, I suppose, the prey available to these snakes, and it has made a difference. Presuming, of course, those two things are connected, which uh, I don't think is too grand an assumption. No, no. You know, so grass snakes are very aquatic and take a lot of aquatic prey. They're one of the snakes that can even eat toads. Um, a- adding a pool frog in, perhaps a slightly naive pool frog to this number of snakes. I don't know what level of snake predation they're under in Sweden. But I would presume it's slightly lower, because I can only think that snake populations in Sweden are lower than they are in a rather prime bit of the UK in terms of climate. Um, and, they, and they've made, the, well, I suppose the pool frogs have made the most of it, because they're actually still there. They have established, right? Yeah. And the grass snakes are doing better than ever. Yeah. Yeah. So they estimate that. I mean, these are pretty crude estimates, as I'll say in the paper, but um, they reckon that there was approximately 53 when they started in 2004 to approximately 576 in 2012. Is that actually what those numbers are saying? Yeah. Yeah. They do have a lot of caveats to it. Double spot, I... Okay, yeah, I mean, I think... Yes, okay, yeah, no, yeah, sorry, I mean, that's not the... That's the absolute maximum at the end of 576, isn't it? That's not really what they're suggesting it is. Oh, no, yeah, you're quite right. They're suggesting it's more yeah. like around 400. Yeah, so, yeah. And even... Oh, I yeah, you're quite sort right. Of tentatively saying it's lower than that. If you look at other studies looking at grass snake density, they're suggesting maybe it's around 200 individuals or something. Yeah. If those numbers were carried over... Yeah, yeah. So one of the ways, uh, yeah. Sorry. No, go on. No, you carry on. One of the ways they might be accounting for this because they've got, okay, you've got the low detectability, which is a big problem. Um. So, there is going to be a chunk of uncertainty with this, regardless of, of how you deal with it. But one of the things they're suggesting is actually they've captured, because they're doing it individually, they may have captured a larger area than what their study site where all their refugia and sampling is taking place. But of course these snakes are moving potentially in and out of this area and an individual that's there one year and then two years, you know, come, coming back and forth, you might be getting individuals from further afield that then boost the population but they're not really making use of that habitat as much and they're just popping in for a little bit and then leaving. And, you know, they suggested that the grass snake is quite a mobile snake as snakes go 
and present some other studies that have done some home range estimates. I, because I do some home range stuff, I went digging into the home range stuff because actually I already had these papers to hand for other purposes. And so you had the overall range that these studies are suggesting are from 0.18 to 120.5 hectares. Pretty broad. Which seems like an obscene range, doesn't it? That's nuts. And I thought, that is really weird. And knowing how sort of difficult it is to estimate home range on snakes, I had to do a bit of digging and work out what, what, what's gone wrong here, because there's no way... <laughs> you know, 120 is crazy big, and 0.18 is like a very small viper size. That's and a pond, isn't it? 0.18. <laughs> it, yeah, it's nothing at all, man. And some of them, it seems like they just had very small uh, times being tracked. And 0.18 was actually excluded from the study it was taken from, a, which was Whistler. a Reading and another oh, yeah. Reading and Joffrey Redding paper, and Joffrey, yeah. um, where they did a bit of uh, what's the right word for it? They don't call it bootstrapping in the paper. It's essentially bootstrapping, where you see if, as you add more points, how the home range increases. And it should level out-ish when you get a certain number of locations, so you can get be relatively confident that you've captured the majority of that snake's range. And actually, that small number is from one of the snakes that didn't reach that asymptote. So it didn't level off. So maybe that minimum's a bit low and if you discard the snakes from that study it bumps it up to 1.9 which at least seems a bit more reasonable it's still quite low but so that leaves you with an estimate of 1.9 to 120 hectares it does but then you go look at the uh whistler et al 2009 paper and have a look at that crazy snake and it is a crazy snake it's what it's just one snake that's 120 hectares all the others in the study are like high teens to 20, uh, sorry, high teens to 40 hectares. And it's just this one crazy snake that did a really big move, or it looks like it did a really big move. I don't know the exact how long it spent in each location or in between, because it's just based on a minimum convex polygon around all the points. But it looks like it's just been one big move that's just blasted that estimation way out the water. So, could just be a weird one. And the final paper they mention is a Madsen 1984 paper, which is giving you around 20 hectares. Again, slap bang in the middle, so, eh, looking alright. But in the Madsen paper, he suggests that it's probably a little bit lower than that if you calculate it on a sort of accumulation of different smaller seasonal ranges which was quite neat. I hadn't seen that done anywhere before. But anyway, the point is, I don't think it's 1.9 hectares. I don't think it's 120 hectares. It's feeling like it's going to be like 20 to 40 hectares, or 10 to 40 if you've got really prime habitat at the low end that can take a lot of snakes. The upshot of all of this is... The study site is 10 hectares. Yeah. The surrounding suitable habitat is 130 hectares. Well, that's being generous, I think, because it's mostly coniferous woodland. 
Yeah, and I'm you know I'm trying to be generous here. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got a home range for individual snakes of say ten to forty, and the other paper, the Gentilian Zuffi ninety five paper, was suggesting a carrying capacity of a snake per every ten to eighteen hectares, right? Yes. So ten. I mean that's that seems like they're still getting too many snakes for how big that area is, even if they're moving a lot in and out of the place. Yeah, their other caveat, though, is that maybe they've actually just inadvertently created a snake utopia, and that's why there's so many. I mean, that could really be possible. Because, I mean... It really could, because they've got almost every species of amphibian found in the UK in this area. Yeah, snakes are lazy, right? They don't want to do anything they don't have to do. Yeah, and there are studies that suggest that snakes range less and fit in tighter spaces with higher um, food densities and stuff. Yep. Like that, that has been documented in other species. So, I, yep, there's a I there's a really think paper. That, that could be more. There's a Glaudas paper where they supplementarily fed uh, puff adders and they moved around less. Yeah, there's another one. Uh, Wasco and Sasa have done it for um, buff rops. Mm. as well yeah so yeah i mean it goes to show doesn't it maybe they've just you know created this series of ponds which is just absolutely awesome for grass snakes and they've just come along they've set up shop they've exponentially increased their numbers (laughs) and they've chilled yeah possible i i think so i mean the chances are that it's going to be a combination of a couple of these things yeah i think with any and home range stuff although to me it doesn't read as a particularly likely solution I'm sure it's playing some role in it. It's got I mean it really has to be. Yeah. Cuz a lot of those studies they're not super long term and I don't know how grass snakes react year to year. So the ranges could be bigger because you've got then done a study on the population dynamics over what was it 8 years did you say? Yeah. And home ranges it there are arguments that they never really stabilize. So I don't know. It was just it was interesting to see because you had such a weird range, and I feel like I just had to <laughs> I had to investigate it. Yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> My duty to good digging. Um, yeah, I mean, it all kind of reinforces the notion that um, it's really hard to do all this stuff with reptiles, especially snakes. Yeah, man. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it, that's what's so neat that they've got. A population trend in both their prey and their predator here. Yeah, like that is an achievement in of itself. Just being able to maintain this over eight years consistently enough to be able to even give these estimates because these estimates are really valuable, even if they're a bit shaky on the top and bottom end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't not say that it's benefited the grass snakes if you can't get exact numbers. Well, that might just that's just that, isn't it? You're never really going to know exact snake populations. Yeah. Let's move on to the species of the bi-week. Mmm, special species of the bi-week. Special treat species of the bi-week. So, um, this week, this bi-week, we've got... Kindler, Chevre, Ersenbacher, Bohm, Heel, Jablonski, Van Berger, and Fritz, 2017, 
Hybridization patterns in two contact zones of grass snakes reveal a new Central European snake species, published in scientific reports. Hmm, a snake species that was always there. Yes, hidden, cryptic diversity. <laughs> so, um, yeah, grass snakes, as we've just been talking about, they're one of our English snakes. Um, they've recently been undergoing some other taxonomic change. Um, Natrix astreptophora was recently elevated to species level, where before it was Natrix natrix astreptophora. Um, that's mm. one from uh, the North African Maghreb region, Iberian Peninsula, and a little bit of France. Um, that got elevated based on uh, some genetic stuff. It also looks different. It's got kind of a red eye. Uh, less ventral scales and a different skull and um, it does co-occur with Natrix Natrix they're sympatric but uh, they don't really interbreed so it was decided that that is a species of its own that that kind of recent taxonomic division sets the scene for this paper um, I mean this story you remember this caused carnage like complete like, chaos and confusion in the UK media didn't it well to me it highlighted how lazy some journalistic outlets were because you could find that one thing that reported it incorrectly and then a copy-paste job yes it was so obvious that it was a copy-paste job it was really disheartening i know that's how they do it though that's how everything gets re-reported unfortunately one person writes it yeah i just don't think i had twigged onto it in such a way Mm. when until it came to something that was like i looked at the abstract and be like they haven't that's not what they said yeah well like that's what annoyed me it would have been okay if it was a little bit of subtle we should say what happened <laughs> yeah okay so basically um the british broadcasting company um among others among others among numerous all of them n- numerous much. others uh basically said there was a brand new species of snake in the uk uh, and they kind of made out like it was an addition to the three that we already had so we said earlier we've got the adder the smooth snake and the grass snake they made out like there was then literally they explicitly said fourth species of snake in the uk um which was entirely incorrect what actually happened was this paper came out and they identified the fact that there were numerous clades within the species natrix natrix one of which which was the subspecies natrix natrix helvetica which is what we get sort of the edge of germany west into england um actually was genetically distinct didn't readily interbreed with its neighbors and so it could be elevated to its own species natrix helvetica um mm. but yeah i mean facebook was like blowing up everyone was like oh my god a new species of snakes so amazing it's like no <laughs> you know the amount of people <laughs> i don't know i got pretty tired of commenting on the statuses i didn't do too many but yeah got up on my high horse and uh yeah it's just this really confusing thing. I mean, in fairness to the media, it's um, it doesn't actually explicitly state it. Actually, it does, I suppose. But yeah, I no, I think no, you, you don't get you don't get to give people that much of a break for this <laughs> well, because I, if you don't understand something, find someone and yeah. ask them the question before you publish something. You are publishing something. Yeah, okay. That's quite a big I mean, thing to push that button and mean that's public information. Yeah. The pictures are a dead giveaway, really. Come on. There's, there's a, you're allowed to try and fail and be corrected, definitely. But when it was obvious there wasn't that much effort put in because of the copy-paste nature of those articles from that originating one, 
then you start getting less of a break. Fair enough, mate. Yeah, you got to you got to take a hard line. Um, like I'm totally happy someone reading the stuff, getting it wrong, retracting it, or correcting it later on. Yeah, mistakes happen, misunderstandings happen. Fine, but it didn't look like that's what happened. It looked like it was a copy paste job. Yeah, it was definitely <laughs> bad scholarship. And so, uh, yeah, anyway. So what actually happened was, like we say, this one snake got reclassified, Natrix Helvetica. And um, we call it now the Bardgrass Snake, which is quite, tel- it's, you know, it's a fitting name because it's the one with the bars down its sides. Um, mm. And yeah, this paper identified kind of two contact zones between three distinct lineages. Well, there was more, but those were the kind of three main ones. Kind of yeah, a, three big ones. Yeah, yeah, a western one, a central one, an eastern one. The western one up to the River Rhine, uh, which kind of flows this massive river that goes from like Switzerland. It's part of the border between uh, Liechtenstein and Switzerland, and then Austria and Switzerland, Germany and Switzerland. Then it's part of the German and French border, and then it goes through Germany and the Netherlands. Um, yeah, so it's a big old river. And around there was where the first contact zone was, which was Natrix, Natrix, Natrix in the center, and Natrix, Natrix, Helvetica on our side in the west yeah, yeah. and then uh, you've got another contact zone between Natrix 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 and I think then further east it's just still Natrix 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 no? Um, yes but, well they they said that those ones didn't constitute separate species yeah. probably but they were never they were in the process perhaps of yeah. separating or so, not yeah so they kind of split uh, maybe five or six million years ago but they yes, still have a really to wide hybrid 7. zone. Seven point three eight million of the east, the other two, right? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, because they've still got a wide hybrid zone, both geographically and in yeah. terms of like interbreeding. Whereas the Natrix Helvetica and Natrix Natrix, where they converge, they actually don't really interbreed that much, and their hybrid zone is quite narrow. Exactly. That was what was cool. Was although there is some interbreeding going on, everything's very tight and tidy on the division between Helvetica and the rest of the grass snakes. Yeah. And then the other side, it's very muddled and there's much more gene flow in and out both ways with those lineages. And it's a much, I mean, we're talking like a hybrid zone of 50 kilometers for Helvetica and the rest of them. And then hundreds of kilometers for the hybrid zone on the other side, which I don't know, it's, it's a really, really nice example of two different uh lineage interactions or how they can interact yeah and i like that they came up with numerous um sort of um converging well not converging but numerous species boundaries which were similar so they had loads of examples in like toads and uh newts where yes. there's you know, there's a really thin hybrid line, you know, like uh, fire-bellied toads and uh, mm. different newts and pond turtles and wall lizards, where there's a really fine hybrid zone, which suggests that the hybrids themselves maybe aren't at any kind of a competitive advantage, which could be one of the reasons why there's this like distinct speciation going on. But um, then they also com- like conversely came up with situations which were similar to the more eastern contact zone where there was really wide hybrid zones and what was interesting to see was that all the examples with the thin narrow hybrid zones the two sides had been declared as separate species whereas in all the wide hybrid zones the two species had been declared as subspecies um yeah or just it feels like we've now brought grass snakes up in line with other 
species in terms of sort of biogeographical zones of Europe, which is quite neat. Yeah, it's quite cool. It's a good paper. Yeah. No, I, I really I really like it. It's a really cool example. I mean, it's a bit, you know, the methodology and stuff is a bit dense to get through, but the story here is really, really cool. Yeah, it's not accessible, which, like I say, is why I think the media got confused. The simplest thing to do is to look at the diagram. But then even, I mean, even still, there are a few red dots. There's a red dot in the UK. Yeah, they talk about those sort of possible translocations yeah. from places, uh, a couple in the Netherlands and things. Yeah, no, it, it is it is a tough paper to get your head round. I'm not going to... I'm not faulting anybody for not understanding the original primary literature because it isn't easy. I'm faulting the copy paste. Yeah, no, it's fair. <laughs> that was done. I, I really don't mind <laughs> trying and failing. I'm not. I don't want to discourage people trying. <laughs> no way. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, it's not quite as fun as our usual species of the bye week, but it's something that maybe is worth clearing up. And actually, you know, they've recently edited the BBC article. One of my friends shared a link to it, and um, it's now been fixed. It's actually sensical. Yeah, that's good. Took about five months, though. <laughs> uh, that's less good. Yeah, you know. But as long as it's corrected, corrected now, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hop on about it. Yeah, it's fair enough. But uh, oh, the other thing that was possibly worth mentioning is that because it's changed. Um, because it's such a distinct zone between the two, there are a whole bunch of the subspecies on the Helvetica side, but not explicitly looked at, should also be probably have their names changed to Natrix Helvetica and then the subspecies name. Because there's a very slim chance of them being more related to Natrix Natrix, as in the eastern lineages, when they're on the west of that quite hard division. Right. Yeah? Yeah. Like the ones from Corsica and stuff like that, which I believe is Natrix Helvetica Corsa. Ah, well, there you go. So, um, I think that just about wraps it up, doesn't it? Uh, oh, we didn't you have something to tell us about uh, an interesting paper you'd seen? Oh, I had a couple of things. One was a Thompson et al. paper that's defending the use of taxonomy and how it's necessary for conservation. Oh, I was going to save that for the special. Don't worry, though. <laughs> oh, you were going to... Oh, but... Well, let's just bring it up now. That's fine, right? Yeah, okay. We're just talking about a paper that seems quite highfalutin and weird, separating species off. Okay, what's the actual practical applications for that? And the Thompson et al., 2018 paper sort of provides that um, argument Okay, quite nicely. You will have to talk about it by yourself, though, because it's on my to-read list. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that, uh, we'll just bring, we'll bring it up. Uh, we'll bring it up another time. Are you sure? And dig into it more. De- yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, there's enough in there that is very sort of us-centred in terms of getting science that seems very abstract and turning it to a real conservation benefit yeah so i think i think it's one that we should discuss yeah okay right on well we'll kind of informally both plan on talking about that then yeah cool all right nice one so uh yeah um if we i do do have another thing oh sorry go on there's a kingdom et al 2012 paper about uh the african crested rat um 
this rat's toxic. It eats like trees, and then is toxic like a like a toad or something. Oh yeah, this has been. And then things try and bite it, and it dies. Yeah, this I never heard of this <laughs> animal. Crazy. And then it's like lit up social media recently. This weird little elephant mouse thing. Oh, I don't. I haven't seen it on social media. I got it via uh, other sources. Is it a new paper? No, it's 2012. What is it going? Yeah, because uh, I I can't remember where I first saw it, and then. Well, there's not much really to say. Other, I just wanted to bring up there's a rat that's toxic, and when things bite it, it, they tend to die. And it's and it's got this amazing ability to like eat the root roots and bark of this. Uh, Acocranthera shimperi, I guess that said, a type of tree, and then it sequesters some toxins into its uh, fur and hair follicles, and then it then it can poison things. And it was just it was just really cool and out there, and I couldn't not say about it, even though it's not herpetofauna related at all, apart from it's vaguely reminiscent of other toxic creatures, I guess. Crazy, isn't it, when uh, mammals are um, venomous or toxic? Yeah, it was just wicked. That's that's all I want to say. Cool. It was just wicked. Do you you know what they look like with their weird elephant trunk faces? Um, I'm not sure if you're... What's it called? Talking about the African crested rat. It's uh, Lophemus im... Hosai? Hosai? Oh god, it's weird. Maned rat. That that is odd. Yeah, crest African crested rat. And uses poison trick to foil purposes. Oh, okay, so I'm thinking of a completely different animal here. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We'll talk about that at a different time. <laughs> <laughs> He's wicked. But there we go. That's all my bonus stuff, I think. Okay. Yeah. You got anything bonus? Uh no, I don't think so. Just on... <laughs> oh, for God's sake. I'm going to find it now because... Hey, yeah, Selenodon. Oh, yeah. No, no, that sounds like shrew that can bite you and stuff, isn't it? Poisonous shrew. I mean, it's got horribly small eyes. It looks terrible. It looks like a... Oh, man, they're funny. No, they're not. They're horrible. It looks evil. It reminds me of something out of the Dark Crystal. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. You know. There you go. To- toxic mammals. Yeah. Enjoy. It bites you. That's why people tune in. Yeah. It uses its teeth to bite you as well. It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> Savage. Yeah. Uh anyway, yeah, they're from Cuba. So uh well, and Hispan Hispaniola, which is uh half uh half Haiti and half Dominican Republic, is that right? I think so. Yes. Yes, that is right. Yeah, anyway, so that pretty much wraps up this episode on uh, native snakes. Bizarrely, we ended up talking about venomous mammals, poisonous mammals. Hey, sometimes you just got to. Yeah, just get down the garden path. But um, if you want to correct us, if we got anything wrong, or if you feel like we've misrepresented your favourite venomous mammal, then... You can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us on facebook.com slash herphighlights, or you can tweet us at herphighlights. Um, 
anything you want to get in touch about do uh yeah please if you enjoy the podcast consider donating to us on patreon for as little as one dollar a month you get cool rewards if you do that and yeah thanks for listening yeah thank you very much for listening hope to have you all listening in in a couple of weeks time cheers cheers as well poor decisions <laughs> oh nice <laughs> uh